Namaste and welcome to another edition of the Bharatwarta Weekly. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you to uh, our uh, viewers and our guests as well. So we have Ashish Chandorkar and Srivatsa Subana here to talk about the news and events of the week that was. Uh, this week was special. We also completed one year of uh, Bharatwarta. We published our first episode on February 25th last year. And since then, it's been a fantastic ride. Hey, Ashish. Hey, Vatsa. How are you guys? Good morning. Good morning. morning. Doing good. Yeah, somebody also mentioned in the last uh, comments uh, that, you know, Bangalore weather is always good. Ashish will always eat poha and Vatsa's mic will always be on mute. You know? So <laughs> that was an interesting comment, right? Uh, moving on, last week we put out this excellent episode, uh, which was like a really comprehensive deep dive on the Kerala state elections uh, coming up. I mean, it was uh, uh, Rohit, of course, is an encyclopedia of uh, knowledge, right? With these matters, and he was very well balanced by Anant as well. Uh, so, what's up? What do you think about this? I think. Uh... It's a fabulous, fabulous episode uh, for someone like me who doesn't know a lot about Kerala politics. And I think I'm pretty sure that even for those who know quite a bit about Kerala politics, they would have learned something new or figured out something new. Uh, you know, especially with Rohit, uh, the thing is that, uh, you know, when you think that there is another level of depth he can't go to when it comes to political insights, he, he always seems to find that next level. Yeah. Um, and Anant uh, also brought in, you know, that perspective of, uh, as he called himself, an ex-communist uh, and now a BJP sympathizer. They were very interesting so- sound bites and a uh, lot of lot of depth and detail about Kerala politics. So uh, anyone who is interested in the upcoming elections in Kerala, I think, should definitely watch this episode. Yeah, certainly a fascinating episode. Uh, okay, let's move on to the first uh, item of news that we're going to cover. Uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi ji inaugurated India's first toy fair yesterday. Uh, the toys in particular are made out of natural and eco-friendly material with natural colors. This is part of an initiative to use less plastic. Uh, the Prime Minister interacted with several toy clusters from across the country in a video conference. The fair aims to bring together various stakeholders associated with the sector. What's up? We've spoken about this, uh, you know, last year as well as part of the Atmanirbhar initiative uh, that, you know, toys are one of the major exports from China. Uh, what do you make of this? Yeah, uh, I think b- uh, before that, I think Ashish had spoken about it in our uh, episode on China, where he mentioned some of these uh, products that can easily be manufactured in India that don't require a lot of uh, high technology and India sh- should uh, start looking at manufacturing some of these uh, in India domestically, right? Uh, Seems like the government has heard him. Uh, So the thing is, uh, in August, right, was when uh, the Prime Minister first mentioned this, uh, the idea of a toy fair and manufacturing toys in India domestically. Uh, Before that, uh, in December 2019, what the government had done was... uh, it had increased the import duty on toys from China. So that in itself uh, would kind of make uh, local manufacturers more competitive. Uh, so once uh, the announcement was made, work kind of started you know, towards organizing this. 
and in between there were some policy initiatives and some steps taken by different states right uh, so just to give you know a lay of the land kind of a thing india uh, india's domestic toy industry is about 1.7 1.8 billion dollars of this 1.5 billion dollars is imported and of that 90% comes from china and taiwan so that's about give or take 1.3 1.4 billion dollars of toys and a lot of these do not involve high end manufacturing or uh, you know anything that is high tech so they can easily be uh, kind of manufactured in india uh, what was holding uh, indian industry back was that most toy manufacturing in india is in the unorganized sector so their ability to churn out uh, newer designs or you know come up with newer molds is restricted because they don't have access to capital uh, because they are not at that scale where you know they'll have access to the capital to come up with newer molds and keep coming up with newer toys uh, so what the government did was uh, there are specific you know toy manufacturing clusters that have now been set up uh, and uh, these are uh, in in each of these 100% fdi is allowed right so uh, that will bring in much needed foreign investment and we'll be able to manufacture much higher quality uh, toys in india so uh, you know about eight clusters at the cost of 2300 crores uh, has have already been approved by the government and these will be using eco friendly materials uh, so overall uh, i think from a sustainability point of view from atmanirbhar bharat from building capacity domestically to bringing down trade deficit there are many many such benefits and we are seeing you know some of these foreign investment come in for instance foxconn is setting up a 400 acre toy manufacturing cluster in kopal uh, in karnataka uh, i am again going to be accused of being you know very biased towards karnataka but uh, overall there is a plan to set up 35 clusters right across india uh, so it's it's a great move because this is what you know ashish had also called a low hanging fruit and mm-hmm. something that can be developed very quickly and will also generate jobs so medium to long term uh, i think i think it's a very good move yeah we should definitely do a deep dive on indian manufacturing because plenty of action happening here uh all right moving on india and pakistan agreed to a ceasefire along the loc in jammu and kashmir The countries released a joint statement last Thursday that that announced that uh, you know discussions were held and a mechanism for hotline contact uh, is being discussed as well. Uh, India-Pakistan relations have been strained ever since the February tw- 2019 Pulwama attack and the Balakot airstrike afterwards. Uh, now both sides have decided to use border flag meetings to de- deal with unforeseen situations. The ceasefire was agreed upon after over 10,000 cases of ceasefire violations that took place across the border over the past 3 years. The US has called this a quote-unquote positive step towards great peace. Ashish, uh, we're seeing we're seeing a period of relative peace uh, both with China and Pakistan in some sense, right? So what's the big picture here? I guess they are quite related Terry. What is what might have happened is that because the China disengagement happened uh, following that soon after we have seen this uh, agreement which is uh, been put in this was quite surprising because uh, the last such agreement happened in 2003 uh, 
uh, which in, in November 2003, which actually led to about three years of uh, of, of real ceasefire. Like there was no bullets fired for about three years until the terrorism uh, incidents raised its head again in India in 2005-06 window. And uh, then, of course, uh, things, things kind of went downhill from there. But uh, this is quite interesting uh, that uh, without any expectation of this happening, a ceasefire has been announced. Um, the the announcement also said that uh, Ajit Doval, India's national security advisor, has been in touch with his counterpart, uh, Moeed Yusuf, uh, on, uh, and they actually met in a different country. Now, curiously, Moeed Yusuf immediately denied that uh, once the ceasefire was announced, he took to Twitter and put a long thread saying that, well, this is all untrue and he has never really spoken to, uh, to Mr. Doval. But uh, clearly, it seems coordinated at that uh, at, at the highest levels, basically. Um, and if you see the announcements preceding the ceasefire in the last two three days, um, the uh, firstly, I mean, uh, you know, the uh, the the uh, Pakistani army, uh, uh, General Bazwa made some uh, comments around how things uh, should be should be calm and cool, and uh, that was, I think, the first let's say a soft statement which came after the. Pulwama attacks. And incidentally, this was also the week of the anniversary of the uh, the, the Balakot bombing, uh, second anniversary. So he made some uh, uh, soft comments. Then India allowed Imran Khan to fly over the Indian airspace to go to Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka if you remember, uh, Pakistan had disallowed flights of Indian president and prime ministers in the past uh, after the Balakot bombing. But in, India kind of made a reversal to that practice, letting him overfly. And uh, also, uh, uh, Imran Khan himself then said that uh, uh, you know he's ready for talks and all all counts and so on. Of course, uh, he he was also quite uh, quite quite aggressive in his comments yesterday uh, when uh, when when they quote unquote celebrate the downing of uh, Abhinandan's plane. Uh, and but but I think overall the the sentiment seems pretty soft. My guess is that uh, like India is adopting the same strategy which we did. Uh, with respect to Pakistan, when when uh, the Modi government took over in 2014, uh, he invited uh, Nawaz Sharif, then the Pakistan Prime Minister, for his vote taking. He went to his house for uh, a wedding, right? And basically, uh, he kind of created a quote-unquote insurance. It's like a call option where, where, which which he's buying, saying that we are trying everything which is with respect to Pakistan, but if they do something wrong, we cannot be blamed for it, right? So now that the Biden administration has taken over in the US, and we spoke about it at, at, at length, that we are not going to be friendly to India on some of these issues, especially actually on Kashmir, they may have a very hawkish stance uh, against India. So I think India is also trying to just ensure that it is seen taking as the first steps towards normalizing things with Pakistan. So that whenever things go wrong, and unfortunately, as we know, uh, Pakistan's military establishment will make sure that things do go wrong at some point. Uh, the, uh, I mean, India will have an excuse to say that it was not really initiated by India, whatever retaliation India takes, uh, takes from there on. I think this is more like a one step back to ensure that the two steps forward uh, do not, we don't get accused of uh, escalating tensions on in the region when we take the two steps forward. So it seems like a tactical move. And I think also time with the China de-escalation because uh, if Pakistan sees China as withdrawing uh, from, from its positions, then it makes no sense to take an aggressive posture uh, being a client state of China. So I think from their perspective also it makes sense. Right. Next up, uh, the world's largest cricket stadium has now been named after Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Uh, the stadium at Mothera in Ahmedabad was conceptualized by the Prime Minister when he was the Chief Minister of Gujarat. 
The construction of this new stadium began in 2016 and was built at a cost of 800 crores. Uh, the rebuilt stadium will be part of the Sardar Vallabhai Patel Sports Enclave, which will span over 220 acres on the Sabarmati River Bank. What's up? Uh, a lot of people have taken exception to this announcement, especially the part of the naming this uh, stadium and so on. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so, Carrie, I think uh, before coming to the naming and you know the controversy, uh, let's just you know talk about this stadium. I think. Uh, it's fantastic that we have, you know, a stadium of this size, which can seat 132,000 spectators in India. Uh, I mean, and not just that, it has 11 pitches, uh, which is which is the largest in the world. Uh, apart from the fact that it's also one of, it's also going to be probably the world's fastest draining ground. So if there is, you know, rainfall, the match can resume quickly. Uh, it's a it's a world class facility and it's something we should be proud of that the fact that such a you know facility has come up in india at what i would think is a, is a you know it's not very expensive in terms of cost so just to you know give an example when wembley was rebuilt in 2007 it cost close to 800 million pounds uh so that that's the that's the difference we are talking about in in terms of cost Right uh, now, coming to this controversy over naming, I really think it's you know it's a non-controversy. It's a controversy that has been created. Uh, Mr. Modi was the uh, was heading the Gujarat Cricket Association till he became Prime Minister in 2014. And uh, in India, it's a it's a common practice. It's be it's been happening that you know heads of uh, state cricket associations or BCCI have had stadiums named after them. So, for instance, if you look at the Vamkhede Stadium in Mumbai, it was, you know, first thing is it was built because uh, the Mumbai Cricket Association wouldn't get enough tickets for test matches. So, it was that level of a fight that led to, you know, building of a stadium. Uh, And then after that, it was named after the person who got it built, which was Mr. Vamkhede, right? Similarly, you have the M.H. Chidambaram Stadium in Chennai, the Chinnaswamy Stadium in Bangalore, all of whom are named after former BCCI heads. So there is uh, nothing new in terms of you know naming a stadium, a cricket stadium, uh, after you know the head of uh, head of a local cricket body or the BCCI. Uh, and I mean, if we are talking about you know stadiums named after politicians and so on. I mean, I remember in the early years of uh, ISL, the football league, five out of eight teams used to play in, you know, either the Jawaharlal Nehru Stadium or the Indira Gandhi Stadium. So, if, for instance, uh, Kerala Blasters was playing Delhi Dynamos home and away, they would be playing in a Jawaharlal Nehru Stadium, right? Not, uh, and I mean, people can say that oh, the names of the stadium are different in the sense that the Goa Stadium, even if it's a Jawaharlal Nehru Stadium, it's called Fatoda. But in the same way, even this stadium is called Motera, right? So uh, that argument doesn't really hold good. So it's it's a complete, you know, non-issue that has been taken out of context and blown out of proportion uh, that, that a stadium has been named after someone who is the Prime Minister of India right now. All right, fantastic. Uh... The BJP swept the Gujarat municipal elections by winning 483 of the 576 seats. The ruling party maintained their power over all six municipal corporations in the state. 
The vote share in the state was 53.08%, the highest it's been in 25 years. Meanwhile, the INC won only 55 seats. Surat City Congress uh, President Babu Reka and uh, Rajkot City Congress uh, Chief Ashok Dangar have offered to resign from their positions following the news. AIMIM uh, winning seven seats. Ashish, uh, what do you make of this? A pretty incredible result, actually. We've been discussing local polls on weeklies uh, for a while. We had discussed Rajasthan polls. We covered Punjab polls last week, uh, Gujarat uh, this week. Uh, there's generally a pattern in these polls that the ruling party tends to win because the um, so, Kerry, we were discussing about the Gujarat polls. We, we spoke about the municipal polls in Rajasthan and Punjab earlier. Uh, typically, in these polls, the uh, the ruling party tends to win the seats because uh, people expect that having the same municipal corporation as the state uh, government, I mean, the party being the same, helps the city, right? So, in that sense, BJP has been strong, and that is not not a surprise. But after 25 years of controlling practically all corporations and the state, the BJP actually managed to add 100 seats uh, for, for these three six corporations. This was quite incredible. Uh, the new pres party president in the state, T.R. Patel, uh, comes from Surat, which is uh, kind of an unusual thing. Uh, typically in Gujarat politics, the strong politicians have always come from either the central region of Ahmedabad and Gandhinagar or from Saurashtra type uh, area, I mean, Saurashtra area, which is, uh, which is where the current CM, Mr. Rupani, comes from. So, uh, for uh, CR Patel, it was also a challenge to prove that he could, uh, under his leadership, the party can actually retain these corporations. In fact, when the counting started, the things weren't as stark uh, in, in Surat as well as in Barodra. Uh, there was, uh, I mean, it, it looked like Congress will make some gains and there would be some uh, inroads made. But by the end of the day, it seems like Congress uh, was completely wiped off. In fact, another point in the Rajput election counting, where Congress had won zero. I mean, uh, there were 50 seats declared and Congress had got nothing out of the first 50 seats. I think they won four towards the end, making it 68-4 in, in, in Rajput. Uh, same thing happened in Bhavnagar uh, uh, and uh, in, in, in other uh, uh, places as well, where Congress kind of trailed off towards the end of the day. So, um, the the main story, I mean, uh, apart from the fact that BJP, of course, had a very emphatic victory and remember, we have the state elections in Gujarat coming up in about 18-19 uh, months time from here on. Uh, the uh, the other story, uh, uh, of course, was the rise of uh, ARP in Surat, which is what you alluded to. 27 wards uh, in, in Surat, which means that a lot of Congress votes seems to have shifted to ARP. Now, is it a structural thing? I'm not very sure. I think it seems like the local Congress leaders, uh, especially from a couple of communities which have generally been anti-BJP, they all moved to AAP and that's how they took the vote with them. Similarly, in, in Ahmedabad, uh, AIMIM winning seven seats, uh, uh, I mean, that again, show, or actually, I, I don't know if they won all seven in Ahmedabad, but that's for a minimum of four. I think that's uh, another thing for cause of worry for Congress, uh, where see, their vote seems to have shifted to, uh, to a new player. In fact, Hardik Patel actually went on record saying that he was being ignored and he was not getting the right support from the other leaders in the party in the state. So, seems like a cause of worry for Congress, but uh, uh, puts BJP in a very strong position. What will be interesting to see will be how the leadership uh, angle plays out for the state polls. Uh, whether Mr. Rupani will lead the party or, or whether CR Patel will essentially take over the command, that, that remains to be seen. But a uh, pretty good result for the leadership. Alright, moving on. Uh, police found 20 explosive gelatin sticks uh, in a vehicle near the 
Ambani residence. Uh, it weighed about two and a half kilos. Uh, they said the explosives had a potential for an impact area of over 3,000 square feet. Uh, they've registered an FIR against unidentified persons. Um, in similar news, more than 100 gelatin sticks and 350 detonators were seized from a passenger train in Kerala. Uh, the passenger was a woman traveling from Tiruvannamalai in uh, Tamil Nadu. She claimed that the explosives were being used to break rocks and dig a well in Thalaseri. What's a pretty random news, right? Whoa. What are your thoughts? Yeah, Kerry. Uh, so I think, uh, first of all, I, I don't think at Prime of see that uh, these two news bits are related. Uh, the one on Ambani is uh, definitely more, you know, sort of worrisome in the sense that the vehicle came from uh, outside BMC limits. It came from Navi Mumbai. And from there, it crossed like most of the city to reach, uh, you know, somewhere close to Antilia where Yambani stay. Uh, the other thing is, uh, you know, how, how did they get this far without being tracked? So that is something the investigators have to answer. And I'm sure they will. Uh, the other incident, uh, you know, that this is... Uh, this is something that we see quite a bit, uh, you know, especially in states where quarrying happens, right? The easy availability of explosives, especially gelatin sticks, uh, you know, for quarrying, people use it for digging wells and so on for construction activity. Uh, the amount of regulation uh, around this on, you know, where from where people can buy it, are they trained to use uh, some of these explosives? There is there seemed to be a lot of gaps. Uh, even, uh, you know, earlier this month, there was an accident in Chikbalapur where uh, six people died because they were trying to dispose of gelatin sticks. Uh, so I think that seems to be the worrying trend here rather than, you know, looking at it as a potential sort of terrorist threat. At this stage, it's too early uh, to say that. But the usage and availability of uh, explosives so easily, uh, you know, for people, whether it's quarrying or construction, I think uh, is, is something that's worrying. I think that's something the state governments uh, need to look at. Uh, I know there are some steps being taken in Karnataka to regulate the availability and handling, but uh, I think it needs to be done across the board. All right. In some positive news, we're finally seeing India's GDP turn positive. Uh, this is after the pandemic uh, struck. Uh, after a contraction of two quarters, uh, the GDP was reported to have a marginal growth of 0.4% in the October to December category. The government said that this was due to, uh, within quotes, astute handling of the lockdown and a calibrated fiscal stimulus. Q1 and Q2 uh, of FI20 saw the Indian economy contract by 24.4% and 7.5% respectively. The manufacturing and construction sector saw a significant recovery in the December quarter. Um, Ashish, break this down for our viewers. I mean, does this mean that, you know, we're, we're bouncing back and this is uh, a recovery in full swing? Yes, this was expected. Uh, most, most of the forecasts by economists of different banks put the GDP in the positive territory. In fact, if anything, it has been on the lower side, uh, the 0.4% the growth figure for Q3. 
is actually lower than the consensus numbers which a lot of well not the consensus numbers but the estimates which were put out by the by by various economists in fact the lowest estimate was uh, was more like 0.5 0.6% by sbi so the fact that it was it was 0.4% of the gdp actually may uh, shows that the recovery has not fully settled now if you look at the components uh, uh, what what were announced there are two sectors where uh, th there was a negative uh, with a negative uh, i mean the contraction kind of continues one was of course on the services side trade tourism all of that hospitality so all the services which are in person high tax services uh, there was still a contraction of about 7 7% that's understandable because even if the economy is opened up people aren't traveling as much or they are not really moving around as much um, so that was that is one area the other thing the other area surprisingly was the government spending uh the government spending continues to contract uh, but at a lower pace this time it was minus 1 1 and 1/2% uh so it seems that the government is right now uh you know letting the private sector led recovery be and uh, basically using a counter cyclical type approach so when it, when the private sector loses its loses steam the government will then step in so probably they are keeping the powder dry for the next uh, for the next financial year um but as looks like that q3 and now of course also q4 uh, where the tax selection uh, at least for the first uh, month uh, seems to be, I mean will be pretty high we'll get to know the figure tomorrow for january uh, the expectation is that it will be pretty high like in in the in the 120 crore uh, uh, kind of a range uh, 120000 crore kind of a range so i think uh, given that that is the expectation the government probably wants to uh, intervene maybe next year and not not in this quarter so overall positive i mean the fact that uh, india still expects to contract by about 8% for the year which also means that the government will pay off some of the subsidies this year uh, which is also a good sign that they are just cleaning up the books and they're using the bad year to essentially dump everything uh, one shot uh, and, and and start new year on a positive note so uh, uh, the uh, i think what really matters is that while all the high frequency indicators are uh, going well uh, the i mean the indirect tax base is growing the direct tax base also uh, was going to surprise apparently that's been the estimate uh, excise duty collection with the high taxes on petrol and diesel has been pretty high they, they are going to bust the the government uh, the budgeted estimates uh, and uh, things like you know toll collections electricity consumption number of e-way bills being generated all of this is in the, is in the positive territory so seems like uh, the recovery is a, is broad based the the joker in the pack of course is when the nclt proceedings resume uh will there be many more uh, bankruptcy cases filed or there would be claims against uh relatively smaller companies uh, i think uh, in the msme sector i mean what has been the permanent damage there that remains the open question and we will not know the answer until let's say april when the whole the whole nclt uh, proceedings resume currently they've been suspended due to the pandemic due to the pandemic for a year so uh again i mean cautiously optimistic the the forecasts for next year are of course between 11% and 15% depending on whose forecast you read uh even if it is at a lower end of 11 12% that would be pretty good uh and uh that would set india back on the path of the 5 trillion mark uh perhaps with a delay of a year or so what the government has said that for right All right, so that's a wrap from us. Uh, before we wind up, uh, here is some of the customer—I mean, sorry—user love uh, and support that. Uh, sorry, corporate habits can't help. <laughs> uh, here are some of the user love uh, that we've been getting. Right, I mean, thank you so much for all of your uh, 
encouraging uh, words i mean it really keeps us motivated uh, thank you hemang bhai i hope uh, you know it becomes a ritual for more people that adrak chai poha and bharatvarta weekly you can replace the poha with you know steaming hot idlis and sambar if you want right uh, uh, but yeah so fantastic another another great week for us uh, we have a couple of really cool episodes coming up uh, in fact i mean we're going live today this evening uh, right ashish uh, uh what are you looking forward to uh with uh, talking to neha joshi yeah uh, neha is a regular uh, tv panelist she's a national spokesperson for the bharatiya janata yuva morcha uh, she talks about uh, political and social issues quite regularly uh, almost every day i mean actually on 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 national television so quite exciting to get her perspective on what the uh, regulation of social media and ott content means and the the government's view of uh, you know where this is coming from of course we have discussed this topic in the past so we do have some uh, point of view of our own as well um, so uh, that should be live at 6:30 pm today right kari and uh, uh, yeah i think we should wind up before dinas uh, tv appearance starts <laughs> that's the idea yeah no it's going to be live at uh, 6:30 please uh, check our social feeds for the link and of course i mean we'll announce it a bunch of times uh, do join in ask your questions uh, we also have a fantastic episode coming up on uh, the whole farmers protest right and uh, uh, this is going to have of course uh, ashish and also he'll be joined by anand ranganathan who you would have heard uh, in a previous episode as well and of course needs no introduction uh, we're also doing this in collaboration with sunil sharma of uh, uh, the commonwealth friends of uh, man that uh, conservative friends of conservative sorry conservative friends of uh, the commonwealth right which is a very interesting organization uh, ashish Care to talk a little bit about the collaboration? Yeah, so the uh, Conservative Friends of Commonwealth actually works with the uh, the uh, as the name suggests, conservative or the right wing quote unquote parties of various Commonwealth countries. Um, it's a, it's a UK based organisation. Uh, several MPs in UK, several ministers in UK, and of course some countries like Canada, New Zealand, Australia, uh, even the the Caribbean countries. Uh, many of them are the are. patrons or uh, participants in their discussions uh, they don't have as much presence uh, in the indian uh, political circle and their audience in uk which is not not a lot of them are actually in indian origin as such they are simply or even if they are indian origin they would be like british uh, citizens or the first first second generation uh, uh, folk so they want to understand what's happening in india with respect to farmer protest what is the genuine part what is the political part behind it what are the real issues in, in the agriculture sector and uh, of course anand uh, as i said no need no introduction this is about this one in the debate centrally so they uh, requested to have a joint episode uh, where their members can understand this better uh, and we will try to uh, unpack uh, this uh, this whole area the whole agriculture sector for the uk audience this time of course the episode will be available on our platform monthly platform yeah no it's pretty interesting uh, especially you know uh, interest from outside of india right in terms of making sense of what's happening in india because i think people do recognize there's a certain slant in the narrative that is built uh, in the foreign press which of course we have covered in depth uh, you know on a couple of episodes with ruchir sharma and vishal right all right so that's a wrap from us thank you so much uh, for joining us and uh, we hope to catch you on another episode uh, so As usual, skip the news and watch the weekly. It's good for health. <laughs> uh, from Ashish and Vatsa. Uh, until next time, stay safe, take care, and Jai Hind. Thank you.